Section 5 of Three Times and Out by Nellie McClung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Prison Camp. The guard took me to Camp 6, Barrack A, where I found some of the boys I knew. They were in good spirits, and had fared in the matter of food much the same as I had. We agreed exactly in our diagnosis of the soup. I was shown my mattress and given two blankets, also a metal bowl, knife, and fork. Outside the hut, on the shady side, I went and sat down with some of the boys who, like myself, were excused from labor. Dent, of Toronto, was one of the party, and he was engaged in the occupation known as reading his shirt, and on account of the number of shirts being limited to one for each man, while the reading was going on, he sat in a boxer's uniform, wrapped only in deep thought. Now it happened that I did not acquire any cooties while I was in the army, and, of course, in the lazarette we were kept clean, so this was my first close acquaintanceship with them. My time of exemption was over, though, for by night I had them a-plenty. I soon found out that insect powder was no good. I think it just made them sneeze and annoyed them a little. We washed our solitary shirts regularly, but as we had only cold water, it did not kill the eggs, and when we hung the shirt out in the sun, the eggs came out in full strength, young, hearty, and hungry. It was a new generation we had to deal with, and they had all the objectionable qualities of their ancestors, and a few of their own. Before long, the Canadian Red Cross parcels began to come, and I got another shirt, a good one, too, only the sleeves were too long. I carefully put in a tuck, for they came well over my hands, but I soon found that these tucks became a regular rendezvous for the cooties, and I had to let them out. The Red Cross parcels also contained towels, toothbrushes, socks, and soap and all these were very useful. After a few weeks, with the lice increasing every day, we raised such a row about them that the guards took us to the fumigator. This was a building of three rooms, which stood by itself in the compound. In the first room we undressed, and hung all our clothes, and our blankets too, on huge hooks which were placed on a sliding framework. This framework was then pushed into the oven, and the clothes were thoroughly baked. We did not let our boots, belts, or braces go, as the heat would spoil the leather. We then walked out into the next room and had a shower bath, and after that went into the third room, at the other side of the oven, and waited until the framework was pushed through to us, when we took our clothes from the hooks and dressed. This was a sure cure for the cooties, and for a few days at least we enjoyed perfect freedom from them. Every week after this we had a bath, and it was compulsory too. As prison camps go, Giessen is a good one. The place is well drained, the water is excellent, 
The sanitary conditions are good, too. The sleeping accommodations are ample, there being no upper berths such as exist in all the other camps I have seen. It is the show camp, to which visitors are brought, who then, not having had to eat the food, write newspaper articles telling how well Germany treats her prisoners. If these people could see some of the other camps that I have seen, the articles would have to be modified. News of the trouble in Ireland sifted through to us in the prison camp. The first I heard of it was a letter in the Continental Times by Roger Casement's sister, who had been in Germany and had visited some of the prison camps, and was so pleased with the generous treatment Germany was according her prisoners. She was especially charmed with the soup. And the letter went on to tell of the Irish brigade that was being formed in Germany to fight the tyrant England. Every Irish prisoner who would join was to be given the privilege of fighting against England. Some British prisoners who came from Limburg, a camp about thirty miles from Giessen, told us more about it. Roger Casement himself had gone there to gather recruits, and several Irishmen had joined and were given special privileges accordingly. However, there were many Irishmen who did not join, and who kept a list of the recruits, for future reference when the war was over. The Irishmen in our camp were approached, but they remained loyal. The routine of the camp was as follows. Reveille sounded at six. We got up and dressed, and were given a bowl of coffee. Those who were wise saved their issue of bread from the night before, and ate it with the coffee. There was a roll-call right after the coffee, when everyone was given a chance to volunteer for work. At noon there was soup, and another roll-call. We answered the roll-call, either with the French word présent, or the German word here, pronounced the same as our word. Then, at five o'clock, there was an issue of black bread made mostly from potato flour. I was given a light job of keeping the space between A barrack and B barrack clean, and I made a fine pretense of being busy, for it let me out of drill, which I detested, for they gave us the commands in German, and it went hard with us to have to salute their officers. On Sundays there was a special roll-call, when everyone had to give a full account of himself. The prisoners then had the privilege of asking for any work they wanted, and if the Germans could supply it, it was given. None of us were keen on working, not but what we would much rather work than be idle, but for the uncomfortable thought that we were helping the enemy. There were ironworks nearby, where Todd, Whitaker, Dent, Little Joe, and some others were working and it happened that one day Todd and one of the others, when going to have teeth pulled at the dentist's, saw shells being shipped away, and upon inquiry found the steel came from the iron mines where they were working. When this became known, the boys refused to work. Every sort of bullying was tried on them for two days at the mines, but they still refused. They were then sent back to Giessen, and were sentenced to eighteen months' punishment at Butzbach, all but Dent, who managed some way to fool the doctor pretending he was sick. 
That they fared badly there I found out afterwards, though I never saw any of them. Some of the boys from our hut worked on the railroad, and some went to work in the chemical works at Griesheim, which have since been destroyed by bombs dropped by British airmen. John Keith, who was working on the railroad, one of the best-natured and inoffensive boys in our hut, came in one night with his face badly swollen and bruised. He had laughed, it seemed, at something which struck him as being funny, and the guard had beaten him over the head with the butt of his rifle. One of our guards, a fine old brown-eyed man called Sank, told the other who had done this what he thought of him. Sank was the other kind of German, and did all he could to make our lives pleasant. I knew that Sank was calling down the guard, by his expression and his gestures, and his frequent use of the word Blodzenig. Another time one of the fellows from our hut, who was a member of a working party, was shot through the legs by the guard, who claimed he was trying to escape, and after that there were no more working parties allowed for a while. Each company had its own interpreter, Russian, French, or English. Our interpreter was a man named Scott from British Columbia, an Englishman who had received part of his education at Heidelberg. From him I learned a good deal about the country through which I hoped to travel. Heidelberg is situated between Giesen and the Swiss boundary, and so was of special interest to me. I made a good-sized map, and marked in all the information I could dig out of Scott. The matter of escaping was in my mind all the time, but I was careful to whom I spoke for some fellows' plans had been frustrated by their unwise confidences. The possession of a compass is an indication that the subject of escaping has been thought of, and the question, have you a compass, is the prison camp way of saying, what do you think of making a try? One day, a fellow called Bromley, who came from Toronto, and who was captured at the same time that I was, asked me if I had a compass. He was a fine big fellow, with a strong, attractive face, and I liked him from the first. He was a fair-minded, reasonable chap, and we soon became friends. We began to lay plans, and when we could get together, talked over the prospects, keeping a sharp lookout for eavesdroppers. There were difficulties. The camp was surrounded by a high board fence, and above the boards barbed wire was tightly drawn to make it uncomfortable for reaching hands. Inside of this was an ordinary barbed wire fence through which we were not allowed to go, with a few feet of no-man's land in between. There were sentry boxes every so often, so high that the sentry could easily look over the camp. Each company was divided from the others by two barbed wire fences, and besides this, there were the sentries who walked up and down, armed, of course. There were also the guns commanding every bit of the camp, and occasionally, to drive from us all thought of insurrection, the regular infantry marched through with fixed bayonets. At these times we were always lined up, so we should not miss the gentle little lesson. 
One day a zeppelin passed over the camp, and we all hurried out to look at it. It was the first one I had seen, and as it rode majestically over us, I couldn't help but think of the terrible use that had been made of man's mastery of the air. We wondered if it carried bombs. Many a wish for its destruction was expressed, and unexpressed. Before it got out of sight, it began to show signs of distress, as if the wishes were taking effect, and after considerable wheeling and turning, it came back. Ropes were lowered, and the men came down. It was secured to the ground, and floated serenely beside the wood adjoining the camp. The wishes were continued. During the afternoon a sudden storm swept across the camp, rain and wind with such violence that we were all driven indoors. When we came out after a few minutes, probably half an hour, the zeppelin had disappeared. We found out afterwards that it had broken away from its moorings, and, dashing against the high trees, had been smashed to kindling wood, and this news cheered us wonderfully. A visitor came to the camp one day, accompanied by three or four officers, and made the rounds. He spoke to a group of us who were outside of the hut, asking us how many Canadians there were in Giessen. He said he thought there were about nine hundred Canadians in Germany altogether. He had no opportunity for private conversation with us, for the German officers did not leave him for a second. And although he made it clear that he would like to speak to us alone, this privilege was not granted. Later we found out it was Ambassador James W. Gerard. It soon became evident that there were spies in the camp. Of course we might have known that no German institution could get along without spies. Spies are the bulwark of the German nation. So in the Giesen camp there were German spies of all nationalities, including Canadian. But we soon saw, too, that the spies were not working overtime on their job. They just brought in a little gossip once in a while, just enough to save their faces and secure a soft snap for themselves. One of these, a Frenchman named Georges Clerc, a sergeant-major in the French army, was convinced that he could do better work if he had a suit of civilian clothes, and as he had the confidence of the prison authorities, the suit was given him. He wore it around for a few days, wormed a little harmless confidence out of some of his countrymen, and then one day quietly walked out of the front gate, and was gone. Being in civilian dress, it seemed quite likely that he would reach his destination, and as days went on, and there was no word of him, we began to hope that he had arrived in France. The following notice was put up regarding his escape. Notice. Owing to the evasions recently done, we beg to inform the prisoners of war of the following facts. Until present time, all the prisoners who were evased have been catched. The French sergeant-major, Georges Clerc, speaking a good German, and being in connection in Germany with some people being able to favorize his evasion, has been retaken. The company says again, in the personal interests of the prisoners, 
that any evasion give place to serious punition, minima fortnight of rigorous imprisonment, after that they go in the strafbarak for an indeterminate time. Giesen, then 19th July, 1915. Although the notice said he had been captured, we held to the hope that he had not, for we knew the German way of using the truth only when it suits better than anything they can frame themselves. They have no prejudice against the truth. It stands entirely on its own merits. If it suits them, they will use it. But the truth must not expect any favors. The German guards told us quite often that no one ever got out of Germany alive, and we were anxious to convince them that they were wrong. One day, when the mail came in, a friend of Georges Clerc told us he had written from France, and there was great, but of necessity, quiet rejoicing. That night Bromley and I decided that we would volunteer for farm service, if we could get taken to Rossbach, where some of the other boys had been working, for Rossbach was eighteen miles south of Giesen, on the way to Switzerland. We began to save food from our parcels, and figure out distances on the map which I had made. The day came when we were going to volunteer, Sunday at roll-call. Of course, we did not wish to appear eager, and were careful not to be seen together too much. Suddenly we were called to attention, and a stalwart German soldier marched solemnly into the camp. Behind him came two more, with somebody between them, and another soldier brought up the rear. The soldiers carried their rifles and full equipment, and marched by in front of the huts. We pressed forward, full of curiosity, and there beheld the tiredest, dustiest, most woe-begone figure of a man, whose clothes were in rags, and whose boots were so full of holes they seemed ready to drop off him. He was handcuffed and walked wearily, with downcast eyes. It was Georges Clerc. End of section 5